Him be glory in the church. That is the goal of the church. That is the goal of our lives, to bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. But that's not always easy. The challenges of life abound for us. And on this Vision Sunday, we're going to think about some of those challenges, both in Israel's lives and our life as well. As we pursue God and pursue what He has for us, very often there are times when we don't know what to do next. There are times of challenge. It may be financial challenge. It may be illness. It may be a family challenge or spiritual challenge. But life is filled with challenges. We look around our world and we see a war going on in Ukraine. Imagine living in that and the challenge that that would be. Or in Sudan where they're suffering. We reflect back even on our own war in Afghanistan that seemed like it went on forever and ever and ever. And then we come to Israel and understand that their battle to take the land of promise took about seven years. A long conflict, a long struggle. And this morning we're drawing that toward a close and I'd invite you to turn with me to Joshua chapter 11 as we look together at what Israel was called to do at this challenge in their lives. Like Israel, Berean has challenges. We came through by God's grace and praise to him the challenge of COVID and other challenges that have happened since. But the reality is there are still challenges ahead as there was for Israel. By the time we reach chapter 11, Israel has conquered two-thirds of the land, but it is not time for them to quit. We've come through COVID and those other things, but it's not time for us to quit. We are looking at a pastoral transition, but it's not time for us to quit or stand still. Within a 20-minute radius, 20-minute drive radius of Berean, there are 237,000 people. We don't have a land of Palestine to conquer, but we have a region to reach with the gospel. Of those 237,000 people, less than 40% of them attend church regularly. That's our challenge. God has put us here as a lighthouse. And our purpose statement says that we are committed to developing fully devoted followers of Christ for the glory of God, what we just sang about. That we help people to know God personally, come to know him, to grow in knowing him. That we connect them to other people within the body relationally. And then that we serve sacrificially, whether that's here or around the world. And so on this Vision Sunday, let's allow Israel in chapters 11 and 12 of Joshua to encourage us in that. Let's allow them to to give us a couple of challenges Now, this is going to be an unusual sermon for me. Most of you know we generally go verse by verse through a text, and we're going to do some of that today. But it's also Vision Sunday. I want to to apply what we're looking at with Israel, both individually but collectively as a church. And if you're a guest with us today or you're watching online as a guest, I want to encourage you, we are going to look into God's Word today. 
that's important. It's part of who we are. And I've had the experience on vacation of Peggy and me walking into a church and we really, I really want to hear somebody else preach in a good sermon and we sit down and the pastor says, now today we're going to have a fireside chat for the people of our church. And it's like, no. So this isn't just a fireside chat. We will look into the word of God and if you're a guest with us, hopefully what we are looking at will be an encouragement to you as well as to our congregation. Here's the first challenge. As we look at what in the world does God want us to do and how in the world can we do it? When God calls us to a task, God enables us to do it. That's God's part. God's part is that he supplies all that we need. He keeps his promise. He fulfills his covenant. And though the task before Israel or before you and me or us as a congregation may be daunting... God's enablement is there. Israel is about to face their greatest, their largest battle to date. Look at chapter 11, verse 1, and let's pick up the story. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, that this would be the conquest of the southern part of the land, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshafa, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country and in the Arabah south of Chinneroth, Chinneroth would be the Sea of Galilee, and in the lowland, in an Anathoth door to the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites in the hill country and the Hivites. Are you tired of the names yet? It's a lot of people under Hermon in the land of Mizpah, and they came out with all their troops a great horde in number like the sand that's on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. That's their daunting challenge. These six people groups, refugees from the south, the armies that had fled, they all gather together. And the king of Hazor leads this strong northern coalition against Israel. Hazor was the largest city in Canaan of that day. The the scholars tell us probably about 40,000 people, which doesn't seem large to us, but in that day, that was big. In size, geographically, the city is probably 20 times the size of Jericho. So this is an important city. This is an important king. And he rallies together all of these other independent city-states, and they put aside their differences And they're united to oppose Israel. And their soldiers number like the sand on the sea. In other words, you can't count them. There's so many. And they have the most modern weaponry available. We laugh, but it is. In that day, horses and chariots, they were the shock troops. They were the best you could get. And Israel has no horses. And Israel has no chariots. And they don't have innumerable soldiers. But they have God. And the reality is that the task may be daunting, but God is in control. He is sovereign. The task is not too big for him. Look at verse 6. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Now, for all the animal lovers in here, I need to explain hamstringing the horses. That was cutting the horse's hamstring. 
It would hurt the horse, but the horse would heal, but it would never again be a war horse. It could be used for plowing or other things, but neither the Canaanites nor the Israelites could use it in war, and burning the chariots is obvious. Nobody can use them. The Canaanites can't use them, and and God doesn't want Israel to have them because he doesn't want them to trust in horses and chariots, but instead to trust in him. I love the fact that God comes to Joshua and for at least the fourth time says to him, don't be afraid. Because that tells me that Joshua, like me, perhaps like you, struggled with fear sometimes. And God says, don't be afraid. Maybe Joshua and Israel were a little bit like Hagar the Horrible and his forces as they're facing a major enemy. And lucky yet, he says, the enemy force is overwhelming. We need to retreat. And Hagar says, we never retreat. Okay, how about we relocate? I can live with that. I actually like one cartoon a little bit better, but I couldn't find it. It's kind of the same scene that he and his small band of army are facing this massive army in front of him. And he says, man, there's the enemy. Who is ready to fight and win or die? Raise your hand. And he turns around and his men are all like this. One hand, he says, just one hand. Maybe that's what Israel felt like when they heard about this coalition. We should put our hands up. We should give up. But they don't because they know what you and I know that God's in control. And the truth is that God actually is orchestrating this like he did last week with the southern kings. He's orchestrating bringing all these kings together in one place so that in one major battle, Israel can break the power of the northern armies and their cities will be a whole lot easier to take because the armies have been defeated and the soldiers are certainly much less. And so God says you are going to hamstring the horses and burn the chariots. That's both a promise and a command because God is faithful. And we need to be reminded that when God calls us to a task, he enables us to do it. So what might he be calling you to do this morning? Maybe for some of you, just walking in the church building was a daunting task because you haven't been in a while. Maybe some of you need to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you're afraid of what that means. I want you to understand you can trust God and his enablement. Maybe God's calling you into ministry of some kind. You heard Johnny and Sherry's testimony, a daunting task, and yet God enables. Maybe God's calling you to share your faith with somebody and when you think about that, your mouth gets dry and your knees knock. God enables Maybe he's calling you to serve in ministry. Maybe, maybe you've been thinking about Action Day Camp and maybe I should go to that meeting. I'm not sure I can do it. God enables if he calls you. I shared with our men's leadership class a few weeks ago that when I was growing up, as the son of a pastor, people would look at me and say, oh, you're going to be a pastor like your dad. And I would say, no, I'm not. Because I looked at what my dad did and I thought, I can't do that. We're very different personalities and But what I had to learn over time was that when God calls, God enables. And by God's grace, he's enabled for 40 years, and I am thankful for that. God enables when he calls us to a task. So let's think about Berean's daunting task for just a couple of minutes. Because God has called us to minister in a culture that is getting darker and harder. 
And we believe as leaders that we need some new facilities, some development of facilities to do a more effective job in reaching. So how did we get here? Where are we? Well, over six years ago, with a growing children's ministry and a need for more adult Bible study space, we began looking at possible renovations to our building to meet those needs. And after several uh, studies and attempts, we realized renovation was not going to do it. And so in January of 2019, the deacons engaged the Jeffrey Parker architectural firm to help us analyze our facilities, analyze our ministry needs, and develop a long-term site plan, as well as plans for more immediate help for what we needed right away. Uh, That firm has many years of experience working with churches like ours. Uh, Jeff Parker visited during the services, and he watched what went on at ministries. He talked to a lot of you, and then he began to work with our design team to develop a plan that would meet our needs. So in September of 2019, we brought some designs to the congregation. We had a forum and got input, took that back, changed some things, came back in January of 2020, presented plans that were met with great enthusiasm. And so at that point, the deacons voted to hire church growth services to analyze and help us determine what funding level we could achieve with funds on hand and with a good capital campaign. They came back and told us with a good capital campaign and a sizable mortgage, we could build the facility that we needed. And so we moved toward a vision Sunday like this. It was actually set for April 19th, 2020. Yeah. And then the world changed. And everything shut down. And all our plans got laid aside. But by God's grace, we came through COVID, came through it well as a church. And so when we began resuming full ministry in 2021 and on into 2022, those same needs were there. In fact, our nursery and our children's ministries had grown through that time. So our needs were even greater. And so the design team began to meet again, and we began to work with the Jeffrey Parker architectural firm to reevaluate things. Uh, The plan was adjusted for where we were post-COVID just a little bit. It was adjusted to a more phased-in project due to rising costs and rising interest rates, which many of you are experiencing. But we actually ended up, I think, with a better design overall and a plan that allows us to phase in what we're trying to accomplish. As I look around... I see a lot of churches today that are doing very little with children's ministries. They've either shut them down completely or they have them just during their morning worship service and that's all they do. And I wonder who is going to reach and train the next generation? Because that's a critical time frame. I see a great opportunity for Berean to step into that gap. And I see new facilities being critical for us with our growing children's ministries. I see our Awana program expanding and impacting more families as children accept Christ. So what is it that God is calling Berean to do? What is the project that we're considering, that we are proposing? Well, it would be a new addition, 6,065 square 
foot addition to the north of the building, approximately where the children's playground is, and then 3,025 square feet of renovated space. And I realize the pictures I'm about to put up, you can't see well, but you probably notice there are drawings out here in two places in the lobby, as well as in our fellowship hall, and you can look at them more closely. But you can get an idea of the, the new area and the renovated area, which will add eight children's classrooms and a children's worship area, as well as additional bathrooms. It moves all of the children's ministries into one place, and it allows us then to begin to consolidate our ministry there. It does not fully meet all our needs. It does not meet the needs some of you want of a gymnasium. Uh, but we do have a long-term facility plan that includes some of those things if that's what God directs down the road. This is part of our long-range facility master plan. When God calls us to a task, God enables us to do it. So the question is, is God calling us to that task? That's what we're seeking to discern. We as leaders believe he is, but we are a congregational church. We need your input and your confirmation as well. And I'll talk a little more about that in just a few minutes. But let's go back to the book of Joshua for a second challenge. Because when God calls us, he not only enables But we must trust, we must follow trusting that enablement. That's our part. His part is to call and to enable. Our part is to follow. We have to lean on the faithful promises of God and move ahead. And when we do that, battles can be won when we step out in faith, trusting in God's enablement. Remember when Israel was crossing the Jordan River, what had to happen? Remember how the priest had to step down into the water before the waters parted? The same thing is happening here in chapter 11. It's just not quite as obvious. So go back to verse 6 with me of chapter 11 and notice one word that is critical. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. What we need to understand is when Joshua receives word that this coalition of armies is gathering, he is at Gilgal. He's in the central southern part of the land. They are gathering at the waters of Merom. That is a five-day march. So that means that Joshua and Israel marched for four days, basically saying, God's promised us the land, God's promised us the land, God's promised us the land. It wasn't until the day before they arrived that God comes and says, all right, I have, and I will give you the victory. You will win tomorrow. They stepped out by faith, and God allowed them to win a great victory. They do a surprise attack, much like they did on the southern coalition. So Joshua, verse 7, and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them, that's exactly the same wording from verse 6, what God promised. The Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as Great Sidon and Mizroth Mayam, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. God gives the victory. Notice that this time there are no miracles. There's no giant hail st- 
stones falling and killing Canaanites. There's no sun standing still in the sky. This time it just required Israel's faithful obedience, trusting in the enablement and the promises of God. Obedience was the key. Verse 9, Joshua did to them just as the Lord said. Verse 15, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. They follow up then by burning the city of Hazor because, as verse 10 tells us, Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. So they're the leader of the coalition. So they get special attention. And Joshua not only destroys the city, he burns it. Jericho and Hazor are the only cities that are recorded as being burned. The rest are left for Israel to live in. If you were to read verses 11, 12, 13, and 14 on through the chapter, you'd find that city after city after city fall to Joshua and Israel as God keeps his promise and they win. Now, we do need to pause for just a moment as I have a couple of times and just remind you why God is ordering Israel to do this. Why are they destroying the Canaanites and killing them all? It's because the Canaanites were desperately wicked and it was God's plan to give Israel that land. The Canaanites had the truth. They had opportunity to repent. For 400 years while Israel was in Egypt, they could have turned away from their sin, but they didn't. Israel leaves Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. The Canaanites hear all about that. We know that from Rahab and other testimony. And yet, in spite of that demonstration of God's power, they don't repent. During that 40 years of wandering, then Israel crosses the Jordan into the land. They still won't repent. They become more and more evil with child sacrifice and bestiality and prostitution. And the time comes when God finally says enough. And in verse 20, we see God hardens their hearts. It's a phrase you may recognize from the story of Pharaoh and Moses. How Pharaoh hardened his heart and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Both are true. Both are true of the Canaanites. They hardened their heart and shook their fist and said, We will not give in except for Rahab and the Gibeonites. And God said, All right, if that's the way you are, I will harden your heart further so that you will resist and you will die. It's a judicial sentence passed on them because God wants to keep the poison of the Canaanites' wickedness from spreading to Israel. It's like radical surgery. But don't get lost in that. What we need to really grab a hold of is the fact that battles can be won when we step out in faith, trusting God's enablement. In fact, the story goes on to show us that enemy territory can be taken when we step out in faith, trusting in God's enablement. And we don't have enemy territory in the sense of a land to take, but I'd suggest to you that that those 237,000 people within a 20-minute drive are part of the territory that God has given us as a church to influence, to point them toward a Savior that many of them don't know. So look at what God does for Israel and let that encourage you and me. Verse 16 of chapter 11. So Joshua took all the land 
the hill country and all the Negev and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. They took the land from the far south to the far north. That's what all of those geographic references are about. And then chapter 12, which we're not going to read, is a monument to God's faithfulness. Because as you come to chapter 12, the first six verses talk about how God enabled Moses to conquer the, the land on the other side of the Jordan. And then as we move on in verses 7 and following, we see how God enables Joshua to conquer the land. And so in Joshua, in chapter 12, verses 9 through 16, there's 16 kings in the south. And verses 17 to 24, there's 15 kings in the north. And none of those kings could stand in the way of God or his people. They even defeated the Anakim. Do you remember the Anakim? Verse 21. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There were none of the Anakim left except in the land of the people of Israel, only in Gaza and Gath and Ashdod did some remain. The Anakim were the giants. They were the ones that back in Numbers 13, when the spies came back, the ten spies said, they're giants in the land, we can't take the land. And here's the fulfillment of God's promise as the Anakim are conquered and driven out by Joshua and his men. By the way, that little reference, there's only some left in Gaza and Gath. Anybody remember a giant who came from Gath? His name was Goliath. And all of Israel trembled before Goliath, and then David stepped out to take him on. Why? Because he knew that if God called him, God enabled him to take down the giant. Older commentator Matthew Henry writes, Giants are dwarves compared to God's omnipotence. I like that. Got any giants in your life? They're dwarves compared to what God can do. And Joshua conquers all the land of promise. When God calls us, we must follow trusting his enablement. So if God calls you to, to serve in missions, or God calls you to serve in action day camp, or God calls you to forgive somebody that you're having a hard time forgiving, or God calls you to share your faith with somebody, if God's calling you to do that, he can and will enable you. If he's calling you to give up some habit, maybe not a bad thing, maybe it is a bad thing, and you think, I don't have the power. No, you don't, but God does. And he enables. So let's think about that on the larger scope for all of us. Some of you are wondering, how can we talk about building? Why should we talk about building? Let me address some of that. Why should we consider building a children's wing now? What is it that has brought us to this place as a leadership team? It's because we desire to minister to children and families during these critical and formative years, to minister to them, to help them come to know Christ so that we continue to grow as a church so that we can keep the home base strong to minister overseas and in the United States. Of those 237,000 people within a 20-minute drive radius, there are 95,000 households. 30% of those had children under the age of 18. 
and less than 40% attend church. Why should we consider building a children's wing now? Because our current facilities were great in their day, but they don't meet the needs and the expectations today. In fact, in that 20-minute drive radius, those people who are 18 or above, 73% of them have a college degree or at least some part of college, which tells us that there are expectations for quality there. Why should we think about building a children's wing now? Because we've been blessed with a growing children's ministry. Our children's ministries are larger now than they were in 2016 when we began thinking about all this. We have guests with children almost every week and the potential for growth is great. I see young families and their children who are excited to be part of Berean. Pastor Jim just had a conversation recently with a a family and one of the reasons they're here is because of their child and enjoying children's church. After the first service, I had somebody come to me and say, this is exactly why we are here at Berean. And I said, would you be willing to stand up and say that in the next service? And he said, no. (laughs) So I shared it with you instead. I see young families and their children just excited to be here. On Wednesday nights, I watch as adults and kids come in for Awana and stream past and realize I don't know a lot of these folks. On Tuesdays, I see moms and their kids coming in for Joyful Mom and wanting that kind of a ministry. Encourage you to, to come and watch Action Day Camp or even better, go to the meeting and sign up to help in Action Day Camp and look at the excitement of kids as they come in for that. And it's not just outside, Bereans experiencing our own ongoing baby boom. So we're not only adding to our ministries by people coming in, but by new babies being born. You'll get to see some of them dedicated next week. Awana today is larger than it was in 2016. I think, in fact, it's the largest it's been in my ministry time here. Last Wednesday night, they had over 60 Sparkies, K through 2. What all that tells me is that there's a demand for quality children's ministry in this area. That's why when we opened up Action Day Camp for the community, it closed in two hours. And we have 240 plus kids plus a waiting list that could take us to 300. It's not the facility that hampers us so much as transportation and volunteers, but it shows us the niche that Berean has and the desire that there is in this area for parents to have their children involved in a quality ministry program. Why should we consider building a children's wing? Because our children's ministries are too in, are currently in two widely separated areas in our building. One over here and one over there down in the basement. And that makes it hard for guests when they come to figure out where their children belong, especially if they have children in both locations. And our check-in personnel see that uncertainty and confusion and And they do a great job of trying to do all they can to alleviate that, but it's still a negative. Having children in two locations makes check-in and check-out hard, and that process is critical today. The proposed addition will allow all of our children, K through 5, to be in one area, and it will be right near the nursery, so all of the kids will be right in one, one area. Why should we consider building a children's wing now? Because our children's ministries are currently in two widely separated locations. 
And we have a great security team, and we have a great security plan, and our kids are secure, but that is not ideal. The proposed addition will greatly enhance our already good security, and that's critical in the days in which we live. It'll have a single entry point check-in for children. It'll include lockdown capability. Parents today expect to have access to their kids, but other adults who aren't parents not to have access, and that will certainly be possible. It will allow us to have bathrooms that are dedicated to children only, which is both a comfort and a security issue. And it'll accommodate emergency plans for fire and tornado and lockdown procedures. Why should we consider building a children's wing now? Because there's not enough room in the kids' church area in the current basement meeting area. And the majority of our guests will come in this service, and the majority of their kids will be in kids' church at 1030, and the emphasis needs to be placed there. There, There's a need for a large group area that is better than what we have down there. The one we have is kind of oddly shaped and not real workable. Why should we consider building a children's wing now? Because our children's facilities need to be updated and decorated in a way that promotes the ministry and reflects the curiosity of kids and the technology of today. Uh, Pastor Jim and Karen and our CE team have worked hard to make the current facility as up-to-date as they can, but we're limited by the facility that we have. We should also build because we have a growing adult Bible classes on Sunday, and we need space. We're often running in the 9 o'clock hour, well, in the combined Sunday schools, between 300 and 340 people, kids and adults. And in the 9 o'clock hour, some of you know, your rooms are getting a little crowded, and we have no room to start other classes. But if we do this, we will be able to renovate the downstairs area into two or three adult classroom spaces. Every Wednesday night, almost every inch of this facility is used. This will, again, give us some additional room. So as we head on toward the landing, uh, let me address the elephant in the room. Because there's an elephant in the room, right? My transition and a new lead pastor coming. And I would tell you, from my perspective, the timing is not ideal. From my perspective, 2019 would have been a much better time. But that clearly wasn't God's perspective. And God isn't caught off guard by any of this. And the truth is that we now have the opportunity to lay the groundwork for whoever will come after me. I I believe Bereans' best days are in the future. And we can lay the groundwork for great growth potential for that man when he comes. We don't know when God's going to send the next pastor. We can't sit still until then. We have a task to do. Realistically, if we wait... We're looking at a couple years for him to get his feet on the ground before we would even begin to consider this again. And Berean actually has a history of moving ahead with things when there is a transition going on. Because when we were without a lead pastor before I came, the plans for and the planting of recast as our daughter church took place. So that when I arrived in 2009, it was all already underway. And I thought, wow, this is quite a church that can do that without a lead pastor there. We need to keep moving ahead, even in a time of transition. When God calls, He enables us, and we have to follow trusting in His enablement. He is faithful. 
Some of you are saying, well, okay, there's another elephant in the room. I, I get this. I understand it. But how much is it going to cost? And how will we pay for it? Well, based on a quote from a respected church contractor, the current estimate is $1.8 million. Now, that's a lot of money. It's a lot less than it was a few years ago. And you know that if you've gone out to eat or bought anything recently, costs have climbed. That cost includes design, build, furnishing, technology, and a 20% contingency fund. How will we pay for it? We don't believe any long-term loan or debt will be needed. We have been saving. Some of you have been giving even though we haven't had a capital campaign going on. We currently have half a million dollars set aside to begin this project. Uh, Tom Sloan and Louis Roberts Estates were a great help in that. Church Growth Services, which is a firm with 60 years of experience working with churches of all sizes, estimates that a good capital campaign will raise between $1.3 and $2 million over three years. In the coming weeks, they're going to do some interviewing and research I'll talk about in a moment with people here at Berean. They'll give us a more refined estimate. Thus, we anticipate being able to build without any long-term debt or long-term mortgage if the capital campaign happens as they think it can. <coughs> Church Growth Services will do a formal evaluation process, beginning with your responses today to the presentation, and they will let us know if they recommend proceeding ahead with it. They'll also do a congregation-wide survey, and only when we hear from them that we should move ahead will we move ahead with this. This is our current facility. Thank God for the physical plant he's given us here. It is an amazing blessing. Past generations have sacrificed to build this. Some of them are still with us, not a lot of them. But in 1970, a group of people sacrificed to build the original worship center, which is now the office complex. That same group of people in 1978 sacrificially gave to build the fellowship hall that we enjoy so much. In 1994, the, the worship center was built, and then in 2004, the education wing. And so we need to understand that there are people here who have given sacrificially to build all these. We're not building on their backs. We welcome their participation. We want their participation. In fact, we want everybody to participate at whatever level God enables you and calls you to do. But we need to understand that the future belongs to us. And we need to think about the addition, and this is approximately where that addition will go, so that we can grow and reach children and families. We believe this need is real. We believe it's critical to Berean's future as we reach people with the gospel. We believe this is the right size project for this time in our history. Scaled back some, but doable and meeting our initial needs. We believe that trusting in our God and working together as a church family, we can do this if that's what God is calling us to do. So where do we go from here? What's next? Well, in your bulletin, there is a QR code and there is a, a digital link to a survey that you can do anonymously. It goes to church growth services, not to us. Um, and the deadline for that would be next Sunday. There are actually paper surveys at the Welcome Center if you'd rather do paper you can pick one of those up and fill it out and drop that by next Sunday as well. Some Sunday school classes will talk about that and get some feedback. 
This week we will email out that QR code and that link, so if you forget, you'll get that and you can do it that way. Later on, Church Growth Services will be doing a, a telephone survey of some of our membership and a leadership survey. And then on June 11th, we'll do a congregation-wide survey again. And based on all that data, Church Growth Services will come back to us and say, you should move ahead, you shouldn't move ahead, or you need to do this before you move ahead. And they will let us know, uh, let the deacons know. So there's a lot of steps involved, a lot of opportunities for God to say, yes, move ahead, or slow down, or stop. And whatever he tells us to do, we will do, because that's what it's all about, what God calls us to do. And therefore, he will enable us to do, and we follow trusting him. And so let's look kind of at the bottom line for Israel as an encouragement for us. Joshua eleven twenty three. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. It's not the end of the book, but it's the end of the first section with chapter 12. And we'll come back and pick up that land being divided in a few weeks. But notice the encouragement. What God called them to do, they did. It took seven years of fighting, but they did it with his enablement. So I don't know what God is calling you to do individually. It may be, as I said earlier, that you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, and that's a pretty scary proposition to think about turning your life over to somebody. But I'd invite you to call the office if you're watching online or talk to one of us if you're here, and let us explain more about this God that you can always trust to keep his promises. Maybe God's calling you to step out into ministry full-time or just to step into ministry here or to share the gospel or to forgive or to give up that habit, God enables if you'll trust him and follow him. I've always loved the story of Charlton Heston in the movie Ben-Hur. And if you've seen that movie, there's an iconic scene of a chariot race in it. Well, before that took movie was filmed, Charlton Heston spent several weeks learning how to drive a chariot. And he finally came to the director and he said to him, look, I can drive this chariot, but I'm not very good. I don't know how in the world I'll stay in the chariot, let alone win the race. The director looked at him and he said, your job is to stay in the chariot. My job is to make sure you win the race. See, God would say to us, our job is to stay in the chariot. Our job is to be faithful. And he will enable us to win the race. In fact, he's already won the victory through Jesus Christ. Like Israel, Berean has challenges ahead. There's more to do, and if he is calling us to this and your responses will help us know that, then he will enable us. And if he's calling you to make a decision for him, he will enable you if you trust him. When God calls us to a task, God enables us to do it. We follow. So here's the bottom line. We must fight the battles God chooses for us knowing he will win the victory for his glory. Not for yours, not for mine, not for Berean Baptist Church's glory, for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you know the future, that you know the direction you want each one of us as individuals to go. You know the challenges that you've laid before us that you want us to take on. 
I pray for each of my brothers and sisters here that we would take on those challenges by faith. And for one who may be here or watching that doesn't know you, I pray that they'd be willing to step out and investigate the claims of Christ. And for us as a church, Lord, guide us in these days. Help us to know what you are calling us to do. We pray in Jesus' name.